like Jason said, I've been wrestling with, uh, you know, just what we see in our culture today, uh, specifically in the realm of uh, hearing from God, uh, the spirituality that we see in our, in our contemporary culture. Um, and when I began my studies at Columbia Evangelical, my first uh, thought was I was going to write a thesis on the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Uh, which is about an hour away from uh, from Sedalia, and uh, looking into the teachings and what goes on there, and some of the uh, interesting things that come out of there. Uh, so I've always had a interest kind of in this area, and uh, decided on this as a topic. And as I began to uh, dive into this, I began to realize uh, how little I really know about the subject and how vast and expansive it is. Uh, so what I wanted to do today is just provide kind of an introduction and opening of the door for discussion, uh, partly for me to get fresh eyes to look at this and help me understand what are, what are some issues that maybe I haven't seen, sources that I haven't checked. Um, and so what I tried to do with the scope of this paper was to look just at a snapshot of what we see today and not necessarily go back in church history and talk about past mystics, uh, but try to take a contemporary snapshot of, as a layperson, what I see in the culture, uh, and not necessarily on a scholarly level, although there is much work to be done there as well. So uh, keep that in mind as we begin to go through this, that I'm trying to give a snapshot of what I see uh, happening in our churches on a local level, uh, and hopefully uh, begin some discussion on how we address these issues and uh, Maybe there's issues that I've made that aren't necessarily issues. Uh, you know, as a student, I'm continually learning too. So uh, I would encourage you, any input towards the end, uh, let me have it. Okay, <laughs> just just throw it at me, and uh, I'd love uh, love some input. So that being said, I'm gonna I'm gonna begin to work through this, um, and then uh, towards the end, I'm, I'm sure we'll have some time uh, to address questions and that kind of thing. So. Uh, we will begin. In our cult, current cultural climate, American evangelicalism is living in a fractured state of existence. Throughout the past decades, it has succumbed to many movements and shifts that have left her fractured and divided. Unfortunately, those who would claim the title of evangelical in America can no longer concisely define what that title even means. There are many throughout this group that acknowledge the need to define what it means to be evangelical, but even in the attempt to define it, they find themselves only adding to the ambiguity of it all. This environment is not the result of one cultural factor, but many. Volumes could be written, and have been, about the cultural pressures and reactions that have led evangelicals to this point. With all the instability, many things have crept into the evangelical church that are all but evangelical. It is not the intent of this present work to examine all the areas of evangelicalism that need correction and redefinition, but to look at one fault line that can be traced throughout the growing core of those who bear the name evangelical. The term fault line is used here intentionally to help describe the essence of the issue at hand within evangelicalism. Fault lines are below the surface and often go unnoticed until there is a fracture. Likewise, the issue at hand within American evangelicalism is growing beneath the surface and has potential to greatly fracture the already fractured state of evangelicalism. The issue that must be addressed is what will be called American evangelical mysticism. In dealing with the subject of American evangelical mysticism, it was discovered, as I studied and stated earlier, that the breadth and scope of this topic is rather large and ambiguous. 
Therefore, the intent of this paper is not necessarily to provide an extensive overview and rebuttal of the topic at hand, but to open the door for discussion and further research into the problems brought forth from this ongoing trend in the evangelical world. A clear definition of the term must be carefully laid out for examination in order to properly address the issues at hand within this evangelical fault line. However, this in and of itself is a difficult task due to the nature of mysticism. If one were to ask a handful of evangelicals to define the term mysticism, the definitions that would return would be diverse and lacking unanimity. Mysticism, as it will be discussed, is subjective in nature and will be defined not by its own tenets, but by the religious sentiments of the individuals defining the term. It must also be noted that the mysticism is not monolithic, a monolithic system found only in the pockets of Christianity, but something that can be traced through the majority of the world's religions. Taking the word by its own definition, mysticism is the experience of a mystical union or direct communion with ultimate reality reported by mystics. And secondly, it is the belief that direct knowledge of God, spiritual truth, or ultimate reality can be attained through subjective experience as insight or intuition. These two definitions help to provide a baseline for determining what American evangelical mysticism is. However, while this provides for a starting point in understanding what American evangelical mysticism is, it will be extremely difficult to, to lay out a concise, definitive statement of the term itself. And the reasoning for this is due to the enigmatic and obscure diversities of mysticism found within the evangelical world. An entire work can be written on all the diverse ways American evangelical mysticism manifests itself. Nevertheless, this will not hinder the endeavor to address the issue, for while it might not appear the same across the spectrum of the evangelical world, there are two things that can inevitably be found every time in varying degrees and variation. And that is an elevation of religious sentiment over objective truth and an esoteric interpretation of the scriptures. One thing must be made clear in the definition that, definitions that have been laid out to this point that there is an aspect of Christianity that is indeed mystical. For example, the first definition laid out is found within Christianity in the fact that believers are united with Christ through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The union of the believer with the triune God of, of the scriptures is mystical in the sense that they are connected to the Father through the Son, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is through this link to the absolute that the term mysticism may apply. However, in the application of the term, there is no mystical experience to be sought. This is a vital aspect that must be understood, for there are, many, there are mystical realities present, with, present within Orthodox Christianity. But these realities are actualized in the conversion of the believer. Once a person steps outside these bounds and delves into the second definition laid out pertaining to mysticism, they have stepped out of the evangel evangelical Christi Christianity altogether. In other words, when a believer tries to ascertain direct knowledge of God and spiritual truths through their subjective experiences, they have denied the, actual, the actualized mystical reality they already inhabit. The mystical union that occurs between the believer and Christ is actualized in their life at conversion. The mystical union, the union is mystical in a proper sense in that it is a union of the person to the absolute who is Christ. To then, through various means, try to work up a mystical experience in order to strengthen or understand that union more would be to deny not only the union itself but the power of the gospel to restore man to his maker. 
The great error in this ideology is the diminishment of the gospel itself, though this mostly goes unnoticed. Mysticism's goal is to create a deeper connection with the absolute through subjective means. Through this, the mystic relies not on the written words of God, but on their own subjective spiritual experiences to uncover deeper truths and to be united in a deeper sense to the absolute. Mystical practices work themselves out in diverse ways within the evangelical world, such as seeking new revelation through contemplation, working up ecstatic experiences, using pagan, pagan means to establish a deeper knowledge of reality and to what has been labeled heaven tourism. However, it may work itself out. The mystical practices deny the reality of the union of the believer already has with Christ. The Apostle Paul definitively argues that all men who come to faith in Christ Jesus do so by grace through faith, a truth that even uh, most evangelical mystics will acknowledge. As stated earlier, when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are then united with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This union that takes place is by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in subjective experience. The mystical union that takes place in a believer's life is the result of the person and work of Christ and not the efforts of the believer to possess a deeper connection with the absolute. When the mystic tries through subjective means to attain a higher level of spirituality, he unknowingly denies the present mystical union actualized in his life brought through the power of the gospel. For the power of the gospel not only saves man, but raises him up and seats him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. While the physical body will not yet be united with Christ in a glorified state until a second coming, the present spiritual state of the believer is completely united with Christ by grace, by the grace of God. Therefore, both as to state and to condition, we can say that with Christ Jesus, we ourselves were tried, condemned, crucified, buried, but also made alive, raised, and set in the heavenly places. The mystical union of a believer with Christ is fully actualized through the grace of God at conversion, and there is therefore no need to try to attain a higher level of union with the absolute. When the mystic through subjective means seeks a better union, he inadvertently denies the power of the gospel to unite him with his maker. It is through various practices that the mystic attempts to gain deeper union, insight, and knowledge about the absolute and thinks he is growing spiritually. However, in doing this, he denies the power of the gospel and the present perfected union he already has in Christ. Through seeking this subjective experience, the mystic also tries to usurp the providence and plan of God to be fully united with his people in the final consummation. This ideology works itself out in a kingdom now mentality that can be found within some of the American evangelical mysticism. The ideas prevalent within this thought process is that the spiritual realities and the physical realities of the work of Christ are fully actualized at conversion. It is this thought process that denies the providence and will of God to actualize the physical realities found in Christ in his second coming. Mysticism not only inadvertently denies the power of the gospel to unite fallen men to their maker, but also distorts the call of God on the redeemed to fulfill the Great Commission. Through this practice, the mystic strives to attain heavenly realities in this present fallen world, such as direct communication with God, visitations from angels, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, as well as ecstatic trips to heaven, and much more. It is through this that the mystic focuses his attention inward on himself and not outward to those in need of the gospel message. It is in this that the ideology of American evangelical mysticism pursues the experience of living in heaven on earth 
and denies the call of the gospel to go and make disciples which begins at the gates of hell. While the believer should be about the business of striving to live holy and grow in their knowledge of God through the study of scriptures, these extra-biblical means usurp and undermine the word of God in its sufficiency to equip the believer for every good work. And one thing I will add here is that these issues that I'm bringing up with mysticism, it's not as though we can just paint it with a broad stroke and say everyone that delves into this is guilty of those things, but these are realities that I think are present that if carried out to the ultimate means will result in this. So there is a, going off the page here, there is a historic strain of mysticism that we see where they trace themselves back to St. John of the Cross and so on. And then there is what I see as a contemporary strain that is not connected to historic Christian mysticism as we see in church history, but a new strain that has risen up in our postmodern culture, uh, as well as other factors contributing to that with uh, the disdain for organized religion, uh, postmodernism, and uh, a spiritually dead church uh, that provides an environment for this. Uh, I was talking with Jason last night about this when in my own community, there are 17 Southern Baptist churches within our city limits. Um, but our community is also worse in crime, uh, in violent crime and drugs than Detroit, And uh, statistically speaking. Uh, we have a lot of churches, but a lot of spiritually dead churches. And with the younger generations in our culture, when they see the spiritual experience and see something that looks alive, they are naturally drawn to that, uh, just one of my observations. Um, so we have a diminishment of the gospel. We have uh, an undermining of the Great Commission that is possible through this. And with this, uh, with the undermining of the call to evangelize the lost, it only makes sense that the mystics must then experience a different conversion experience than the norm. Um, rather than coming to repentance and faith, through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystics' conversions can be quite different. Take, for instance, the conversion of Sarah Young, author of Jesus Calling. This is a quote from her. One night I found myself leaving the warmth of our cozy chalet to walk in the snowy mountains. I went into a deep wooded area, feeling vulnerable and awed by cold, moonlit beauty. The air was crisp and dry, piercing to inhale. Suddenly... I felt as if a warm mist enveloped me. I became aware of a lovely presence, and my involuntary response was to whisper, Sweet Jesus. This utterance was totally uncharacteristic of me, and I was shocked to hear myself speaking so tenderly to Jesus. As I pondered this belief, or this, as I pondered this brief communication, I realized it was the response of a converted heart, and at that moment I knew I belonged to him. This conversion account uh, is evangelical mysticism in its truest sense, I believe. Rather than relying on the object objective truth put forward in Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Sarah's conversion experience is wrapped up into her subjective spiritual experience. She meets the first criteria of mysticism in that she experiences, in her words, a lovely presence. Through this presence, or union with an absolute, she then, tries, then receives communication that comes through her own mouth. This is through, it is through this communication that she meets the second definition of mysticism. 
Through pondering this mystical experience, she then comes to the conclusion that this experience was her conversion to the faith. It must be noted that this experience is not the same for all evangelical mystics as if it were the norm for mystical conversion. However, the traits found in this conversion experience can be found in all areas of evangelical mysticism, namely the elevation of religious sentiment over objective truth. The standard of her determining that she, was, that she experienced conversion was the experience itself and not the external word of God, which causes some concern for the conversion's validity in itself. In summary, the concerns put, concerns put forward to this point about American evangelical mysticism are that it has a diminishing view of the power of the gospel, it focuses on self through the pursuit of experience and not the call to make disciples, and it provides, albeit strange, conversions and, the lack, uh, and that lack the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, one more person that is contemporary uh, today is Beth Moore. Uh, there's accusations been against her, and there was an interview uh, about uh, asking about her conversion story, and her conversion story uh, mirrors very closely to what Sarah Young says, just in different language, uh, but very similar mystical experience. These three areas are very alarming in and of, in the in my opinion, and and are serious gospel issues. To add to these concerns, this ideology also demonstrates a very low view of the scriptures. When a mystic elevates subjective experience over the objective truth of scripture, they deny the sufficiency, inerrancy, and authority of scripture itself. In seeking deeper spiritual truth through mystical practices, the mystic denies that the scriptures are able to equip the believer for every good work. When they deny the ability of the scriptures to equip them for every good work, their actions undermine the truth stated clearly in the scriptures about its own sufficiency. In denying the truth, they most unknowingly deny the scripture is inerrant. This is due to the fact that they do not believe that it is sufficient enough to provide all that they need to fulfill what God has called them to do, which then leads to the rejection of the authority of scripture as they disobey the truth that it is sufficient enough for them. While they might argue that scripture is inerrant and authoritative, their actions prove otherwise. This is best witnessed when mystical experiences are used to interpret scripture itself. When the mystic elevates his subjective experience to a higher level than scriptures, he must then in turn interpret the scriptures in an esoteric fashion. Once again, the reader, uh, the reader needs to be reminded that not all evangelical mystics will fit this mold perfectly. It's not as though we're just painting a picture and there's just this big movement out there, but bits and pieces of this can be seen uh, within American evangelicalism. There might be some that have a more diminishing uh, power of the gospel, while some might have a higher view and a more biblical stance, but their practices will line up and be similar to others. So uh, that's part of the uh, challenge in addressing an issue like this is just the diversity that you find within, uh, within this kind of movement. A.W. Tozer, for example, be a prime example with that high level of scripture, um, very authoritative in his scripture, um, high view of inerrancy, but yet he's very mystic in a lot of his daily practices of the faith. Um, a 20th century example. Can you give an example of Tozer's 
So Tozer has written a book on the mystics. Uh, he, he frequently cites the mystics in his works. Um, and there's, I don't know that there's an overt uh, pushing of it, but there's, it's present in a, a lot of his stuff. I have not been able to do a lot of research on that area. Like I said, I've been focusing more on the contemporary, but it's there. Did you? Tozer wrote a book called Man, the Dwelling Place of God. Yeah. And he emphasizes the fellowship that we have with God as Christians. And there's no question about the content of the gospel that he preaches. But then he talks about the immediate experience that we have with God. I don't know if this is the right place to bring up a question about Sarah Young. Yes. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. ahead. Is there, should we draw a difference between the content, the belief content, and the experience? No, as I've told you, right. Sarah Young's book has had a tremendous effect on me last year. Right. And, uh, you know, That's a good question. And so, you know, when I read the, her, about her conversion experience, I was reading about her experience, but since she specifically hastens on to say her experience is not on a par with the uh, inspiration of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible, I'm assuming that she was presupposing the objective content of the gospel as she related her experience. Right. Am I fooling myself? I don't know. I no, mean, I think it's, I think, it's unclear. I think it's yeah. a very important question, and and that was one of the things that come up with what was said about Beth Moore. We, we is that, that for a couple hours. was was that uh, when asked when Beth Moore was asked about her conversion, she explained it in this interview as a very mystical experience. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that was um, a matter of um, artistic license in trying to convey what she experienced in that or whether that was the foundation is something that needs to be looked into deeper um, but I think you know there, there's a danger in rejecting all emotion rejecting all experience because it's just not possible and it's not part of, of, of life but there's a, a fine line of objective truth interpreting experience and um, with ambiguous statements such as hers, it's very hard to to weigh without knowing more. Uh, but what her statement does provide is a good illustration of what this could look like in its fullest form um, without objective truth. Um, so it provides a good illustration and some cause for question, but to just cut the ax down and say, you know, heresy much more needs to be looked into it and that's that's uh really the intent of of what i'm trying to throw out there is these are things that people are struggling with and there is a side in our culture uh in evangelicalism that that cuts the knife and says you're all heretics and doesn't take the time to actually dig into okay where's the line uh and where do we work with people through this in uh, gentleness and respect to lead them to the truth. No, uh, no question. There's another 
sides too. Like you say, that has right. bought into a new age version of Christianity. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, we see it all over the place. You just broke my heart with Sarah Young. Well, well, on, on behalf of Sarah Young, we, we did talk to Wynn because that book did uh, help him through his grieving process this past year. He, he told us point blank, there's nothing in her work that talks and leads to her presenting Christian mysticism, yeah. which I'm going to trust Wynn. Wynn has been a trusted friend for 20 plus years of mine. So, on that, I'm trusting that she's not conveying that in her book. But you take Beth Moore, on the other hand, since the mid-90s, she has claimed to get divine wisdom and divine revelation from God directly that is on par with Scripture. This in with in two or three of her books. And but then you got I can I can I can stand here with Sarah Young. As a mystic in her um, conversion experience, but when you got somebody getting divine revelation and claiming it that's on par, and re most recently above scripture, is her latest claim. We got a problem Amen. with Christian uh, mysticism in America, and unfortunately, it's not just here in the U.S. Yep. Just real quick, in yep. Sarah Young's first book. In her introduction, I sensed, okay, where's the gospel? Uh -huh. really? In her introduction about, but in the second book, I don't know if she got comments from people, but in the second book, as I read her introduction, it seemed like she did present uh -huh. the gospel. There's been, there's been like ten revisions. Jesus calling, and then what's the next one? Jesus. Jesus. I can't remember, but it seemed like. Maybe she got some feedback, uh -huh. and then she did clarify it. Thank you. And it helped me, too, going through a reading process. And my neighbor also, I passed one on to her, and she said the same thing. I'm about to break out into tears. Uh, Jesus always. Maybe that was it. Jesus it always. Like there was a clear. Uh, I see that the, the danger I see in, in, in dealing with this topic, or what I think we need to... Uh, iron out before proceeding any further research is uh, are we equating uh, any emotional experience as a mystic experience? Right. Because right. You can't do that. The, God can reveal himself to people any way he chooses to. Right. Absolutely. And, and everybody's salvation, I mean, under that under a very loose definition, Paul's conversion was a mystic experience. Mm -hmm. You know, where uh, so... Right. So the, the, the defining line is where that experience interprets scripture and not scripture interpreting the experience. So we can go to scripture and I can explain an experience and test that experience. Or that experience doesn't negate scripture or contradict scripture. Right. Correct. Like uh, feeling you, God's presence in the woods doesn't negate scripture in any way. Right. True. Right. Uh, I haven't read Brother Lawrence's book, In the Presence of the Lord. No. That is a classic work where it's where you have a balance of Christian mysticism with the emotions, you can experience Christ and God in the woods, have your emotions, but you have Scripture always above our existential uh, experience. Amen. 
right? So, and that's the that's the challenge of of this. And like I said, looking across the spectrum, as I'll get into in a minute, it's it's very vast and wide, and we have to be very cautious in how we approach this, not to remove something that doesn't need to be removed. Um, and it, it comes back to the authority of Scripture uh, in in the life of the believer and testing everything through that um, and not allowing our experience, our spiritual experiences to be elevated to the point over scripture that end up guiding us and then helping us interpret scripture where scripture should be should be the, the compass in, in the lens in which we see the world. So B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, talks about uh, mysticism and uh, I think it's Warfield it's Warfield or Hodge, um, and talks about the mysticism that we see in the world uh, ba- is basically driven by the personality of the person. Uh, I am not an emotional person, so uh, I respond in a way that uh, reflects my personality to the truth of Christianity. Uh, there are people in my church that are a lot more emotional than I am, and they respond to the truth of Christianity, and our responses look different, but responding to the same objective truth. Now, I don't look at that person and say, well, they're wrong and I'm right, or, or any different, but we're diverse in, in how we respond in our personality. Uh, so in looking at this issue within Christianity, we have to be very cautious uh, not to label emotion not to label spiritual experience uh, or the visibility of spiritual experience uh, as mysticism, but we have to very cautiously work through this uh, and and figure out what needs to be addressed, what doesn't need to be addressed. There are issues out there that need to be addressed, but we have to take an approach in wading through that so that we can properly address those issues. Uh, There are people that I know that would associate certain things with mysticism that aren't necessarily mysticism. Uh, I did just a couple times uh, through this process, just threw out questions on Facebook, what is mysticism? Where do you see it in the church? And the responses I got were huge. Uh, and, and some of the areas that mysticism is applied to, it's not really mysticism. But um, So that is part of the problem in itself, is defining our terms, laying out the boundaries and figuring out what really needs to be addressed, what doesn't. Uh, and that's the challenge. And sometimes, too, the problem could be, and I haven't even read Jesus Calling, um, but one concern I have with it, but it really is not a concern about mysticism, but one concern I do have is that a lot of the ladies at the school I teach at, when we teachers have to share their devotions, and I'm finding that it's about 50% of the ladies will do a devotion from the Bible, and about 50% from Jesus Calling. Now, let me say this, though. This, the reason why it's not about mysticism, if 50% of the ladies did a devotion from the Bible and 50% did devotions from one of Dr. Geisler's apologetics works, I'd be just as concerned. And so, and so I, get, I get nervous when anybody, all of a sudden, you know, there's a Bible and another book in your hands, and after a while, the Bible disappears. Right. Also, in her second book, she included the scripture in her first book. She just put where it was found at the bottom. Uh-huh. So I think, again, she's getting some feedback from people. Like, uh-huh. where's the word? Yeah. And so she held the word on one side and then furniture, <coughs> which I'm, made me feel better. When I've been reading her, I've always gone back to the verses at the bottom of She mentions two. And, and that's, like I said, that was a 
the experience in which she illustrates was a, a if we were to take mysticism in its full sense, that would be what a mystical conversion might look like. Um, and she, you know, there, there are a lot more things uh, that need to be addressed uh, way beyond the scope of, of just that. Um, you know, Beth Moore has more influence uh, and uh, that is more troubling uh, uh, of an issue to, to be addressed. But um, we'll press on here because we're going to, there's a few areas that we're going to wade through uh, that I'm going to bring up that will probably spark some more conversation and need some qualification. Um, so uh, I'll pick up where I left. But once again, the reader needs to be reminded that not all the evangelical mystics fit the mold perfectly. Uh, there are t- some that take a more conservative approach to the mystical practices or, or would not take an esoveer- esoteric view of the scriptures. However, in their actions, they deny the sufficiency, inerrancy, and authority of them. Uh, one note on that is um, we know how, well, I'm assuming we know how to, to weigh truth and always check the scriptures and always uh, examine things. Uh, our, the people in churches don't. Uh, the majority of people that come to church come to church on Sunday morning. They just take everything as it is. They don't weigh it. And they walk into the Christian bookstore and they just pull it off the shelf, not even wondering where it came from, what they're teaching. And so while we are able to address it and we can wade through discussions like we just waded through, the majority of our people can't. So the issue in being able uh, in, in addressing an issue such as this and trying to wade through it is, is as difficult as it is um, is necessary so that we can educate our people one to go to the scriptures uh, and two to have an understanding of what Christian spirituality should look like based off of the scriptures uh, and, and be able to weigh and to measure truth uh, through those lenses um, as stated at the beginning of the paper, the scope of this mystical movement is wide and obscure. However, with all this obscurity, each mystic is faced with the same challenges in variation and in, in degree. For instance, there is a man, man by the name of John Crowder, uh, which is no relation to, to Jason, uh, so don't make that connection. John Crowder, uh, uh, he runs seminars on experiencing the mystical side of Christianity and produces a show on YouTube called The Jesus Trip. Uh, and... Uh, John is very evangelical in the sense that he seeks to evangelize the lost through mission trips. He, he, uh, he runs his own organization where he takes people overseas to do mission trips. It's, uh, he's an interesting person in that he says a lot of things that uh, aren't wrong, but he then interweaves mysticism with it. And uh, it's, he's, he's got a personality that you kind of want to like the guy. Uh, when you watch him, but at the same time, you're kind of he'll say something in the middle of a lot of truth that you're kind of uh, I don't know where you're going with that, but uh, but anyways, uh, he's an example, uh, and uh, many would look at him and assume assume by his actions and by kind of what he says that he's a charismatic uh, by his words and actions, and, and uh, but he maintains the title of mystic. He's very open. He's a, he's a Christian mystic. He's teaching that, instructing it. And uh, in his own words, being a mystic and, and charismatic is no different. Uh, but uh, there are obvious a lot of, obviously a lot of qualifiers that must be laid out in the definition of those terms and determining their equality. But that is how he defines mysticism for himself. So the, the problem is the ones that actually acknowledge that they're mystics 
aren't necessarily going to look like the mystic down the street. Uh, It's all influenced by their own sentiments and and beliefs, uh, and so those things feed into it. Uh, So it's very hard to pinpoint and say, well, they're all like him or or they're all different, uh, or they're all the same anyway. Uh, There are many others. uh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. on the other end of the spectrum, so you have uh, you have the Beth Moore, uh, you have the John Crowder. On the other end of the spectrum uh, is about a lady by the name of Anna Roundtree. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that name. I, I discovered her name in this process. Uh, she has claimed to have visited heaven over 200 times uh, through mystical experience. Um, I watched a documentary, uh, and uh, it was on four different mystics, and, and one of the, one of the guys that was on there was talking about uh, how he, it was through Anna Roundtree that she, he got introduced to uh, the mystical side of Christianity and he is taking trips to heaven with her and, and everything from sitting on their couch uh, at her house. And She's written books about it, about her experiences and explains what she's seen in heaven and it's very, very weird. Uh, but that is, that would be like the far extreme uh, of this. Um, some of the names associated with Anna Roundtree uh, would be uh, Rick Joyner. It was one that was associated with her in, in this mystical process uh, that they talked about in the documentary and a, and a few others that uh, were there. Uh, I would also uh, be amiss not to uh, add to this um, the accounts of Bill and Jen Johnson. Jen Johnson. Uh, of Bethel and Redding, California. Uh, Bill, on numerous occasions, has spoken about mystical experiences and then uh, applied their interpretation directly to Scripture. Speaking uh, in a restaurant, a feather fell down, and he immediately tied it to a passage of Scripture that had nothing to do with what took place. But he was allowing that mystical experience to speak into Scripture and and define uh, what it meant. Uh, His daughter, Jen Johnson, has also had many mystical experiences that she has shared the most popular one being the visible visitation of the Holy Spirit. In her account, which she has shared on numerous occasions, she claims that the Holy Spirit uh, visits her in her room and that he looks like the genie of, from Aladdin. He is very funny. Uh, uh, these are, these are uh, this is not necessarily a historic mysticism that we see within the church, but this is what I would call the new contemporary mysticism that is creeping up a lot of new age things uh, that are coming through that. Uh, another contemporary example, uh, there's a new book out uh, called The Forgotten Way by Ted Decker. Um, I have not had the privilege to read through this yet, but in interviews and, and, and knowing a little bit about him, he's a self-proclaimed mystic, and, and basically he is promoting a mystical journey uh, through this book and to a deeper, uh, I think it's uh, the subtitle is something like Rediscovering the Path of Yeshua. Uh, and uh, laying out how uh, we need to be connected with God. And, uh, like I said, I have not examined that one yet, but uh, what I've seen, it, it bears the mark of, of uh, being mystic, and, and he himself has been outspoken about being a mystic. Uh, contrary to, to the opinion of some, the mystical mu- movement is not limited to the charismatic movement. And one of the things that when I throw, threw out the question uh, uh, and try to, to come up with a lot of people associate mysticism with the charismatic movement uh, and label everything that they see there as mysticism. Uh, while the movement provides the right environment for mysticism to flourish, 
it would be unwise to, to connect all charismatics to the mystical practices. There are many others that could be added to the list of mystics within the evangelical world, ranging from some within the Southern Baptist Convention, the Word Faith Movement, and the Charismatic Movement. There exists a fine line between mysticism and the charismatic gifts. Uh, it's of my opinion that the divine line of mysticism and the charismatic movement uh, would be the biblically prescribed gifts themselves. Um, once a person goes beyond the biblically defined gifts, they have stepped into the mystical. Practices such as sozo prayer, uh, which is also brought out of Bethel Church in Redding, California, is a prime example of this. Sozo prayer is a form of visualization. Visualization. It's a form. It's almost mediation, uh, and it's a counseling guided imagery. Guided imagery. It, it's a, it's a a counseling session that will last between three to six hours where they bring the individual in that is struggling with something. They sit them down in a chair and they have a person sitting right across from them. And then over in the corner of a room, there are individuals waiting on the Holy Spirit uh, to tell them what is wrong with that individual so that they can then correct it. Uh, and uh, there are other practices that, that are coming from that vein um, that are they're very troubling visitation of angels uh, there was a a video produced by them where they talked about an angel visited the children's uh, Sunday school class and the children touched the angel and and very weird uh, mystical uh, experiences uh, there but but to to paint with a broad brush to say that everyone who falls within the camp of the charismatic movement is mystical would be a miss because not all of them are extreme to that point and, and some stay within a biblical parameter uh, whether you're a cessationist or a continuationist, I think you know, we, can, we can draw a fine line between uh, what we would call a biblical continuationist and a mystic. Um, it, it's one of those things that we're very cautious as we go through, uh, as we wade through this, because the tendency in our culture, especially with some in the more conservative and fundamental uh, realms of evangelicalism, they just throw it all out. And they say, if you're part of this, it's, it's mysticism, it's not of God, and they don't, uh, I don't believe they approach it in the proper way all the time in, in doing that. And it's one of those things that we have to cautiously wade through. Um, practices and gifts such uh, as sozo prayer and others that are... Uh, are not brought about by the scriptures but by new revelation through subjective spiritual experiences. So Sozo prayer came from a prophet at Bethel. Uh, it was a new revelation that God gave them of a, of a gift. And they have other new gifts that God has given um, given to them. But there are, there are other qualifiers that must be laid out to understand the line between mysticism and the charismatic movement. But this is, it is not the uh, purpose of this paper to do so. Uh, this brief discussion is to only provide uh, some clarity with the topic at hand, which is the fact that the mystical movement is far-reaching and diverse and not limited or all-encompassing of one sect within American evangelicalism. It is at this point now that the concerns have been discussed uh, and some contemporary examples have been displayed that, that we must now address the question at hand, how do evangelicals deal with this movement? Uh, there are many avenues uh, in which the movement can be dealt with but it is believed uh, by myself that the best defense against uh, it can be found in the person of Christ. It is through his nature, teachings, and work of salvation that the believer can appeal to all the claims of the mystics. So when we begin to approach this, the nature of this is that 
like I said, not every person that delves into this is the same. Uh, some have a proper understanding of the gospel and, and need just need help navigating what real Christian spirituality looks like. Uh, and in that, um, you know, as I stated, there's much more research that I need to do to be able to 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 work through this. But uh, it's uh, it's something. Um, it, it, it's a large and long work of love that needs to take place in our evangelical world to help correct some of these things and deal with some of these things. Because a lot of people that get caught up in this um, are, are coming out of a culture where the church has not displayed the power of the gospel, where, where they haven't experienced God, where they haven't experienced true Christian spirituality. And... Um, we have to be aware of that in addressing this issue because uh, we need to lovingly bring them back to the truth uh, and that will look different in varying degrees on who you're speaking with and, and what the context is. Um, so there, there's a lot there. But in dealing with the main issues uh, that I brought up with the diminishment of the gospel, with uh, the diminishment of uh, and the diminishment of the Great Commission, I believe appealing to the person and nature of Christ is of utmost importance in, in laying out the truth for uh, those in the far extremes of this. In a proper sense, the incarnation of Christ, the hypostatic union, do bear traits of mysticism. This is so due to the fact that Christ was fully God and fully man at the same time. Humanity was united with the absolute in the best possible sense of, of this matter. However, while there was an absolute perfect union of man and God in Christ, this is a union that cannot be attained by anyone else. Man cannot ever attain Godhood and experience the union that Christ has in and of himself. Therefore, when the mystic strives to attain a deeper union with Christ or to experience a higher spiritual level of understanding through subjective practices, they are inadvertently not only denying a present reality found in their relation to Christ, but also attempting to attain the unattainable. This is not to say that the believer should not strive to be more like Christ, but that in that the process must be followed, must be followed, needs to be derived from the proper study of the scriptures. For as Paul states in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is good and acceptable uh, emotional and spiritual aspects that we have as Christians, but it is through the study of Scripture that we are therefore equipped to look at those things and say, this is good, this is a little questionable, this is bad, this is how we need to correct things or see things. Uh, it's, it's not that experience is bad, but we need God's revelation in order to interpret that experience in its proper sense. And uh, that is the challenge in dealing with this, is getting people to that point of realizing it's through scripture that we interpret this experience. It might be a wonderful, glorious experience that, that you have with God, but you need to make sure it's from God. Uh, and that's through the testing, through the lens of scripture. It is through the study of the scriptures that the mind of the believer is transformed and brought into alignment with the will of God and not through the subjective experiences of the believer. To further add to this concept, it must also be noted that Jesus, while praying in the garden, prayed for the sanctification of believers. In this prayer, the request for their sanctification, it was, the word, it was by the word of God which the believer was to be sanctified. Uh, our process as we 
uh, grow more and more like Christ is done through truth, which is God's word. It's through that study, it's through the transformation uh, of our mind, through the study of scriptures, that we are made more like Christ. It's not in a subjective experience that we try to work up. As John writes in his gospel, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's terminology of the logos brings with it important connotations in understanding the Son of God in the flesh. The term logos, while it is debated on the, on the exact meaning it carries in, the, in essence, in the, uh, in the carries with in the essence of a personal transcendent being, as well as a rational almighty power, uh, one who in eternity past and before all things brought the universe into being. In other words, Jesus in his very nature possesses all knowledge, wisdom, and power. And this is important for the discussion at hand because it directly affects how the teachings of Jesus should be taken, and that is with authority. So when we look at Jesus' life, how he acted, what he taught, uh, how he uh, carried out his spiritual practices in life, that is the measurement because he possesses all knowledge, wisdom, and authority. He knows how the world was created and what its function is because he was the one that created it. Um, as the word in the flesh, Christ was the truth, uh, was the truth, the definitive measure of all things. This being so, the teachings of Jesus in Scripture must also be taken authoritative in the life of every believer. From this vantage point, the issues of American evangelicalism must be addressed. When examining the teachings of Jesus, uh, it can be witnessed that the governing authority of, in the life of the human uh, was the very words of God. More specifically, it was the Scriptures that were such an authority in the life of men. In his entire ministry, Jesus never once appealed to the subjective spiritual experiences as an authoritative measure of validity. When men sought a sign from Jesus, his reply was that it was an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Furthermore, in his rebukes of the religious leaders, he constantly pointed them back to the scriptures as a measure of truth, not to their subjective experience of him. It is in no way deniable that mysterious and miraculous things took place in and around the ministry of Christ. However, Jesus placed a greater weight on the objective truth of the scriptures and his own words um, it must also be noted that Jesus never prescribes or models a mystical practice in his ministry. When examining the spiritual life of Christ, specifically the prayers and fasts he partook of, it can be seen that mysticism was not something that was modeled uh, to his disciples. Finally, the accomplished work of Christ in salvation must be appealed to against the mystic. As noted earlier, the work of salvation by Christ was effective in finally uniting fallen man, fallen man to his maker. Man, when through repentance and faith in the accomplished work of Christ on his behalf, is united with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. All of this is accomplished through faith in Christ by the grace of God. There is no mystical process in which a person is to work, up, work them up spiritually to attain this union, nor could there be. But by grace through faith, the individual is united with Christ, and this union is perfect and spiritually actualized at conversion. While this reality is spiritually actualized, it awaits its full physical actualization in the final consummation. As noted earlier, it is the error of the mystic to work, for, work towards experiencing the physical reality that God has not yet, actu yet willed to actualize. It is, the hope, uh, it is my hope that uh, the issue at hand within this movement in the evangelical world has been uh, brought to light that there is much more research uh, and application to be done within and around the issues of American evangelical mysticism. Specifically, more work needs to be done in addressing the spiritual practices of many of the mystics within contemporary Amer American evangelicalism. Information must be gathered and produced in such a way to help pastors and laypersons understand the issues at hand 
as well as equip them to dealing with the issues. It is with hope that through this, the evangelical world might rid itself of this false spiritual movement. So now we'll open it up if there's questions or comments, disagreements, corrections. I have a question that is also a statement. Okay. With the influence of organizations like Bethel Reading Uh and some of the esoteric practices that they um, put forth, and and, uh, uh, such as uh, fire tunnels, uh, Mm -hmm. sozo prayer, um, grave soaking, all these kinds of things. Um, First of all, would you label that as full blown Gnosticism? Um, and how do we counteract the influence of these things that are obviously creeping into mainline evangelical circles? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Gnosticism, I would need to look more into that to make a, a statement either way. I think there are definitely traits that we see there, but I think at the same time I'm not, I'm not educated enough to make that statement. Um, but it's a very good question that needs to be addressed. Um, as far as the influence... Uh, they are very influential, and it is uh, predominantly through music that they have gained their influence. Jesus culture. Uh, yep. their, their, their worship team, uh, worship band, Jesus Culture, uh, has said themselves that they are not a band, they are a movement. Um, if you want Jesus Culture to come in, I know this, uh, I, I have a good friend who's a youth pastor, uh, that a, a youth conference was being put together, a big, a rather large one. They wanted Jesus Culture to come in and do the music. Well, the stipulation that they put is if they come in to do the music, they have to bring their own speaker. And uh, the conference unknowingly agreed to it, brought in the speaker, and then spent the rest of the time correcting what the speaker had said. Uh, and uh, it was very, very problematic for that. So. Uh, they are, in, in, in one sense, a propaganda wing for Bethel and Reading uh, through music. And music is, the subject of music is very difficult. Because there are some songs that Jesus Culture has that are very theologically sound, that are great in worship, and there's really not a lot that you can point to and say, you know, you're pushing something that's bad. It sounds really good. Well, if it sounds really good, then the church you must come from is really good. And then you get into it, and uh, you find out differently along the way. Um, I don't know how. I don't know how we address that. Um, you know, I there are expository Bible teaching. Yeah, I mean, Jesus of Scripture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how you address it. But on a large scale, I mean. Local churches are going to have to get back to Scripture in order for that change to happen. That's what I was emphasizing. Yeah. I agree. The, and they're, I don't know if I'd consider it more Gnostic, but they're almost more cultish. There you is... Know, as, a former, so, as a former prophetic, former charismatic and prophetic voice in the vineyard movement mm-hmm. myself, I will, I will label it as Gnosticism. Personally, so go ahead. One of my, actually, the motivation for my little folk mysticism many years ago was a positive one. Mm-hmm. 
and it turned out to be much more critical than I had expected. And what I wanted to do originally was correct some of the underplaying of the supernatural side of Christianity because you know, things have changed a lot in those 20, 30 years. But uh, you know, there was such an emphasis on uh, discipleship as following these certain steps mm. and uh, such underemphasis. Uh, you know, either you were charismatic or you were a 16th century Lutheran right. that kind of thing. There was such a lack of a biblical understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. that is true for all of us. Right. The, the, that we are new, new creatures in Christ in a genuine way. And you know, reform uh, theologians aren't very happy with that. You know, Warfield rejected it mm -hmm. and other people. But I think it's a reality. Right. The Bible teaches. Well, so it's, I think part of your answer would be, yeah, it, it has to be based on expository teaching, but it also, if it's true expository teaching, it needs to include the supernatural right. parts of God's grace, that he really does change us right. and yeah. make us into new creatures. Right. And that's the challenge in our culture is we've got we have a lot of the same setup today. It's it's one extreme or the other, and it's trying to get a balance of what the scripture says and and having the truth and having spirituality in their proper form and uh, working through that. But I think a lot of people don't have an understanding of what that looks like, and and that's the problem in weeding through this. Is okay. Let's let's try to pull it together here and provide that balance and provide that uh, explanation of on how this is supposed to look. Um. Well, that's why I mean, that's why I, you know, um, want to emphasize proper exegesis of the word. For example, if you take the scripture, take a scripture like, um, for example, uh, uh, when the when the scripture declare that we are partakers of the divine nature, so. In what sense are we partakers of the divine nature? And a charismatic in the Word of Faith movement would have a different definition that than a evangelical who is a cessationist, a reformed, a reformed person who is a cessationist. So, in His holiness and character, are we are we partakers of His divine nature, or do our words have power? In this, in do they have uh, um, creative power as God's do? You know, so. You understand what I'm saying? Here. Right. This is a, a prime example of, of where we, we depart from Scripture and enter mysticism. Right. So. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 like I said, it's very wide and obscure. And I mean, we can talk about the word faith. There's a, a new book out by Costi Hinn that I haven't got the chance to read yet. Uh, uh, Defining Deception, I think is what it's called. Um, and it talk, and the, the, in the subtitle, it's about the mystical healing movement. Uh, he's he is the nephew of Benny Hinn. He came out of that and writes on that. I haven't I haven't been able to check it out, but there's that aspect too of 
of Christianity that I didn't even touch on the Benny Hens and and and, and more on the word faith stuff. So it's it's not as though we can just have one solution to for everybody, but it's hitting each pocket and saying, okay, here's what they're doing good. Here's what we need to help them see through Scripture and, and help correct this. Um, now, I'm not. Uh, can, uh, what is? I don't think that even though solutions is going to change the scenario, but it provides us ways of reaching people that might have fallen into that. Right. Um, I know I know some some students uh, from my community that are attending the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry uh, in 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 uh, in California. They're 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 teaching kids, young kids are going there from all over the world to get this teaching and and uh you know you, you mentioned like grave sucking and that kind of stuff uh you know transformation or transference of power uh where you, you ask individuals to stick your hands out and you put your hands out and you command god to send power through you and they feel it and you know, those are some of the practice one of the latest uh things i saw uh was uh the use of tarot cards uh and uh they call them they call them angel cards, I think, uh, but they, but they, but they're using this as a means of evangelism. And uh, there's uh, there was also another thing, uh, tattoo reading, you know, reading interpretation through people's tattoos to understand who they are. It's, it's just the syncretization of occult practices into mm-hmm. mainstream Christianity. Right. And it terrifies me, having been a part of that in the past. Right. Um, to see what's happening to the body of Christ, particularly United, in the United States, right. let alone Africa and, and Latin America, where, where the prophetic movement is growing by leaps and bounds. Right. There. So the question so, then comes to my mind, at what point does it cease being mysticism and become a cult, mm-hmm. or occultic practices? So there's a, there's a lot of things, a lot of questions, a lot of qualifiers that have to be established in order to address each of these issues um, but what I was trying to do with this paper is just kind of broad stroke here's a snapshot mm-hmm. um, to provide you know for me a starting ground to get feedback on you know what are some things that I need to look at in further research and that kind of stuff so very good any other questions or, or anything you keep us posted on your research I think sometimes it's kind of progressive with people um, mm-hmm our brother-in-law and sister-in-law were in the Word of Faith movement mm-hmm. and experienced a loss in their family. They were mm-hmm. pastors. And, you know, we're, Kevin and I are not charismatic at all. But when they had that loss in their family, they went out to Bethel. Mm-hmm. Now they're really in the middle of that. Yeah. And yeah, and that's an interesting movement. And one of the one of the things we need to avoid is to equate everything with Bethel as well. Is there's a lot of bad things coming out of there, but there's there's other places in the U.S. that are.